All right. Thank you. Um, we're going to talk about prayer today, actually. So this is good. This is very fitting. But let's recap where we've been in Acts. Why are we in Acts? We're in Acts because in Acts uh, we see what uh, the church in its purest form, uh, in its earliest form, looks like. And we as a ministry need that. We need that in our lives. We need to know uh, what it looks like uh, to be a Christian uh, in, a, in a world that is uh, culturally opposed to our ideas and our perspective and our belief in God's Word. And last week, uh, we began uh, looking at this. Well, actually, we, we continued on in the story of Peter and John. Okay, and just by way of review, let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Peter and John are on their way, two apostles are on their way to the temple to pray. Okay, and on the way, uh, a certain man uh, who has been lame since his birth, in other words, he had a, a physical deformity that kept him from walking, uh, was waiting there at the temple looking for handouts, looking for some sort of uh, financial provision. And as Peter and John walk by, he makes request, hey, do you have money? And they stop, and they pause, and they turn, and they, they make eye contact with him. And Peter's response is, money, I don't have any money. I don't have anything to offer you by way of physical provision. But what I have is I have healing, the healing uh, name of Jesus Christ. And he reaches out to the man and he says, uh, stand up and walk. And the man responds to that by reaching out and he stands and he walks. And they go rejoicing into the temple. Well, this created quite a stir, as you can imagine, right? Uh, People are freaking out. They're wondering what's going on. And people are beginning to gather around them. And Peter, uh, as we see him do often in the beginning of Acts, he stops and he begins to preach. He begins to preach. And he makes it clear that there's only one name by which men should be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. And this came in conflict with the Jewish leaders. And the Sanhedrin, we talked about the Sanhedrin, who they were. They stop him. And they stop John, and they they lay hold on them, and they take them, and they put them into a holding facility as they gather themselves and discuss what to do with these men who are beginning to preach the gospel. And if we look at verse 18, in response to their hearing, and in response to their counsel, they decided to threaten them. Verse 18 says, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, we spent a lot of time last week talking about how this isn't actually much different than the cultural suppression that we face today in the Western church. We talked uh, a lot about this idea that there are people who are opposed to you speaking the name of Jesus Christ, and you know them, you come in contact with them daily. And that our, our opposition isn't so much a physical one, we'll address this more today, it's more of a cultural one. And we have been very much lulled to sleep in the Western church. We've been lulled to sleep. We've been made to be silent. And our oppression comes by cultural means. Rejection by the people that we love, our friends, our family, our co-workers, the people that we spend our time around on a daily basis who don't like our doctrine, like our teaching, like our radicalism. They don't like it. They don't like it. They don't like our evangelical bent. They don't like the name of Jesus Christ. They don't like the idea of miracles. They don't like the idea of the supernatural. And they come at us. They come at us in in many ways. And we see it in many different 
it, it takes many different forms, but we've all felt it before as Christians. And, and their response is to us, at least the voice of our culture is, do not speak at all nor teach the name of Jesus. And upon the Holy Spirit's filling, Peter and John answered and said unto them, verse 19, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So their response is, try to silence us. Try to silence us. And that is the call. And that's the call that I hope that Acts has brought into our lives at this point in Kaya. I pray that a lot of you are feeling that kind of conviction. That we would be a culture and a ministry of people that are unafraid of what anything, anyone has to say. And that we would choose to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We learned that in the face of opposition, the faith-filled believer does not fear their accusers or the cultural climate that follows. The faith-filled believer preaches the gospel fearlessly. And that's really what we've been focusing on. Our, our message last week was the fearless witness. Psalm chapter 27, 11 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though, any, uh, though an host shall encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. We need to be fearless. We need to be fearless. Now what we're going to look at today is uh, a message on what it looks like to have a prayer of witness. And what I mean by that is how does the person who desires to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ pray? How do they go about handling their prayer life in light of the fact that there will be oppressors, that there will be people and institutions and systems and cultures that seek to stifle and silence our witness. How do we respond to that? So let's look. Let's look at how our story continues on. We're going to start with looking back at the crooked company, the crooked company, those who are plotting and scheming. Let's look at verse 21. So when they, they, the, the Sanhedrin, had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Okay, so they're pretty dumbfounded. And we talked about this. We'll, we will look at Acts. As Acts progresses, we will see that the only solution that they have is, is physical punishment. What we'll see is that Acts, as Acts continues on, the only solution that they have is to lose their cool and to kill Christians. And we see that that's still happening today. Today, in main service, we prayed according to uh, the voice of the martyr's prayer request for those in our world today who are trying to be silenced through physical attack. This is going on today. This is happening in our world. Okay? Country after country, village after village, the only answer for the love and the light and the forgiveness of the answer of Jesus Christ is to kill Christians. You don't like it. The only way you're going to get me to shut up is to kill me. Okay? That's, that's really, that's the mindset that the believer must have. And that might sound, again, that might sound radical, but that's what's modeled for us in Acts. And so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. 
because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Everybody knew that it was a miracle. They were aware this man had been lame since his childhood. And everybody knew him and was aware of the miracle. Now look at verse 23. And being let go, Peter and John, they went to their own company. Yeah, you've got a company, we've got a company. They went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. When the trial presented itself, here's the question for us. How did the Christians choose to react? That's what we're about to look at. So when it was discovered by the apostles that that they were going to face oppression, how did they choose to react? Now listen to me. They essentially do the exact opposite of what we saw David doing in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. Okay? What Sam preached this morning. They choose to basically do the exact opposite. David chose to fear. David chose to run. David chose to go into hiding. And he was silent for a year and a half. He went to the world for his solutions. They choose the exact opposite approach. What what we will learn this morning is the nature of Christian prayer when facing trial and oppression that prevents, that hinders the free course of the gospel witness. What is the prayer of witness? What is the prayer of witness? Now let's begin here by talking about a corporate cry. A corporate cry. Okay, so for you note takers, uh, I tried to be very clear in my my notes this morning. Okay, uh, but stick... Stick to what works for you, okay? Just make sure you get the key points down. Verse 24 says, And when they had heard, meaning the congregants, the early church, the believers, the gathered, the ones who claimed to be disciples of Jesus Christ, and when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. What's the very first thing we see here? When they had heard the oppression that the apostles faced under the hand of the Sanhedrin, the first thing they choose to do is lift up their voice. They pray. Here the Bible gives us insight into the early Christian prayer life. This is not just any prayer. This is prayer that comes in response to suppression and oppression. Prayer in response to the stifling of the gospel is a lost art form in the Laodicean church. Let me explain this to you. Many of us, we come up against opposition, and we don't even recognize a lot of times that it is opposition. What we say to ourselves is, well, this is a closed door. Let me move on. Anybody ever done that? Any any of us ever kind of tested the water and realized, oh, okay, uh, this place that I desire to go and to preach the gospel or this people that I'm hoping to reach or this person that I desire to reach with the gospel, the water is cold and I do not have a witness here. And so what we do is we say, that is a closed door. And this is us lying to ourselves to make it easier on ourselves most of the time, most of the time. Sometimes it actually is a closed door. And what we have to do is we have to dust off our feet and we have to move on to another place. That's fine if that's what the Lord is telling you. But what I'm talking about, the excuses that Christians make when it seems as though we don't have a clear concise gospel witness. What do we do? We usually cower. We usually make an excuse. and We usually move on, but not the early church. The early church responds by praying. And this, isn't, this is a lost art form. And what I'm calling you today to do is to, to reconsider 
how you respond when it seems as though there isn't a way for the gospel to go forth. How is it that you respond? And the first thing you ought to do is come to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, now let me pause here for a moment. I didn't completely make that point. See, our oppression isn't by the hand of magistrates, is it? There's not many of us who are in danger of being arrested for our witness. It's not, it's not an oppression at the hand of councils. It's not oppression by stocks and whipping posts, though that's what a lot of our brethren face today. Physical attack is what many over the last two millennia have faced. Many Christians have faced that. But our oppression is media. For those of you who are on Instagram even right now while I'm preaching maybe. Our oppression is media. Our oppression is cultural, isn't it? In the West, our, our issue is distraction. Distraction, you know, by work or by entertainment. Ours is one of ridicule and rejection by our friends and our family. And we are lulled into silence. And so what we do is we walk away. We don't pray. We walk away. We don't pray. Christians ought to pray in times of difficulty, but here we see an example of believers facing those who would silence them. How do they pray? Key point number one. It's a long one, so I'm going to read it twice. If Christians refrain from praying in crisis, then we shouldn't be surprised when crisis has contained our witness. If Christians refrain from praying in crisis moments, if you choose not to pray, then you shouldn't be surprised when your witness continues to be stifled and contained. You don't get to be shocked by those closed doors when you haven't prayed. See, what we recognize in Scripture is a pattern of prayer that says, God, give me free course. This is what Paul asks the church to pray repeatedly on his behalf. Pray that the gospel would go forth in free course in boldness. And this is what we see the early church praying as well. We cannot be surprised. If we, if we see crisis coming, if we see suppression, if we see oppression, if we don't have free course, our response ought to be to pray. And if we don't, you need to not be surprised when you don't have free course in your gospel witness. The other thing is that they pray in unity. When we consider what God has done and is in, is, is, He is doing in our ministry in Kaya, we ought not be so arrogant as to believe that we have done anything besides pray and yield. We can get real arrogant if we believe it's something that we've done to see God work. God has done a lot in our ministry and is continuing to do a lot. And a lot of you are here today Testimonies like, like Jake's this morning, right? Jake just got saved a month ago. And we have a lot of friends in this room right now who are making decisions, impactful, groundbreaking, life-changing decisions for the name of Jesus Christ right now. And that's nothing that we have done. That is the movement of Jesus Christ in the lives of those we've prayed for. George Mueller says, This I most firmly believe that no one ought to expect to see much good resulting from his labors in word and doctrine if he is not much given to prayer and meditation. 
The work that God is doing in the lives of the people in our ministry is the direct result of our times of prayer and fasting. The souls we are seeing saved today is God moving through the prayers of our late night prayer after prayer sessions. Those times that we spent throughout the summer after the prayer meetings praying for souls, God is answering those prayers right now. And we ought to not forget that it was those requests that are provoking the hand of God, even now. We have to remember that. Notice that the prayer is made in unity, in one accord. You know, churches today have minimized the need for corporate prayer. They see it and they perceive it as old-fashioned. Back in the day, even, we're talking about 30 or 40 years ago, there was no Baptist church that did not have corporate prayer meetings. All of the churches, all of the Bible-believing churches, believed in corporate prayer. Today, we've replaced that with activity and events, and we're too busy. We're too busy doing other things to come together as the church of God, as a family, and pray. And you don't hear people talking about corporate prayer. Now, culturally, we hear different things. We hear people saying uh, now, you know, talking about discipleship and different things that we believe in. That's great. Uh, But what we don't hear people talking about is corporate prayer because it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient to activity. It gets in the way. As defined in in chapter 2, we talked about this once before earlier on in our Acts series. Corporate prayer is, if you don't have this definition, you want to take it down right now. Corporate prayer is the collective work of those who have agreed to align their desires with God's will. Corporate prayer is the collective work of those who have agreed to align their desires desires with God's will. God's will, singular. Our desires, plural. When we come together as the church of Jesus Christ and pray together, what we're saying is, not our will be done, but yours. Not our will be done, but yours. And we come together and we we find common ground and unification that we might beseech the Lord Jesus Christ that he would do a work in our midst. The idea of corporate prayer in many churches seems old-fashioned. It's an activity of the past. But what many churches fail to understand is that the entire New Testament implies the work of corporate prayer. It's on every page. It's in every book. Of the letters addressed to the churches, each of them contain specific requests that those churches would pray. That they would pray. Each letter takes for granted the activity that local churches, they come together and they pray together. That's what they do. Of the 19 accounts of prayer happening in Acts, at least three quarters of them are corporate. I walked through Acts three times to figure out an exact number. And I just kept losing track. So what I'm giving you is three quarters. That's an approximation. But three, at least three quarters, at least three quarters of the prayers that are made in Acts are done corporately. We like to talk about our prayer closet. We like to think about prayer in terms of personal time, personal meditation. But very few of us take the occasion to come together in prayer. And that has to change. That has to change. Where are the churches today that labor together in prayer? Key point number two. If Christians refrain from praying together, Christians refrain from praying together, then they shouldn't be surprised when our will is divided 
and our vision is lost. If Christians refrain from praying together, then we shouldn't be surprised when we look around and we see a, a, a divided family. We see a vision that seems unclear. You guys know what I'm talking about? Many of us have been in churches like that before. We're not a person in the congregation can say what the vision for the church is. Where the will of the leadership seems to be in opposition to one another. Pastors can't get along. People can't agree. And I would say that maybe a lot of that could be avoided if churches decided to pray together corporately. I have learned more about what God is doing in the life of our pastors from being in corporate prayer meeting than any other activity that I've done. Not in LFBI, not in Shepherd School, not in D2. The prayer meeting is where I hear the heartbeat of our pastorate and I gain the vision. That happens on Tuesday nights when we come together and pray. Now let's look at the content of their prayer. This is what we'll focus on as we head towards the finish line here, the content of their prayer. Let's talk about what it is that they were doing in prayer. First of all, they bring their worship. And we have to ask ourselves, are we bringing our worship to, to our prayer? A lot of us like to get right to the business of making requests, don't we? That's convenient for us, isn't it? Look at, look at uh, verse 24. They say, this is how they make prayer. Lord, thou art God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Prayer begins well when it begins with worship. Prayer begins well when it begins with worship. Many find that beginning prayer is often the most difficult part of prayer, isn't it? Getting ready for prayer. Getting that spiritual feeling, getting getting their feelings stirred up. And oftentimes when we begin our seasons of prayer, our spirit is not engaged, is it? Our lowercase spirit is not, spirit is not engaged. But listen to me, there is no quicker way for the uppercase spirit, spirit of God to engage our spirit than to reflect on the holiness of our God. There's no better way than to know that our prayers are headed the right direction and if we begin our time of prayer with worshiping Him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus is teaching His disciples how to pray and He says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Hallowed. Hallowed meaning holy. Notice that it's capital H. His name is holy. It's a pronoun. He is the embodiment of holiness. Now listen to me. To begin our times of prayer declaring His innate holiness sets the entire universe in its proper perspective. Do you hear what I'm saying? How many times have you entered into a season of prayer where your mind is going a million directions and you have no idea what to offer up to the King? And you are scattered by the day. And you are scattered by your experiences. And your mind is a chaotic mess. But to begin your time of prayer, declaring His innate holiness puts the entire universe in its proper place. It establishes a context for anything we might bring before Him. Anything. 
Key point number three. Our corporate prayers must begin by settling the matter of majesty. Our corporate prayers must begin by settling the matter of majesty. Because if we don't, then our prayers will continue to be jumbled. And our desires would, you, would seek to usurp the desires of the Holy One. Does that make sense to you? Our corporate prayers must begin by settling the matter of majesty. Next, next, notice that the young church also understood that it was their responsibility to bring their specific circumstances before the living God. Verse 25. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel counsel determined before to be done. In other words, they tattle. They tattle. Here they're invoking Psalm chapter 2 as their exemplar. Psalm chapter 2 verse 1 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. Listen to me. They are at once declaring that their enemy will have no power or influence over them. As well as ushering their oppressors before God entrusting him with the job of supplying justice. Does that make sense? So on one hand when they come before him they're declaring the fact that their enemy will not affect them one bit. That's what they're saying. On the other hand, they're delivering before the holy God, the people by name, who would seek to oppress them, that he might deal with them justly. Now, let's, let's think about that for us. Let's be very logical here. Let's look at the application. Who in your life is refusing the gospel? Who in your life is stifling the work of Jesus Christ? What are the entities? What are the structures that find themselves in opposition to the free course of the gospel? What are they in your life? And do you bring them before the living God by name? That he might deal with them justly. That his spirit might work in their lives. That they might find conviction. Key point number four. Key point number four is our corporate prayers must be a call for God to supernaturally deliver us from all impediments to the gospel. What hill does God not want to take? Have you ever thought about that? What what people group does God not want to reach? 
They don't exist. He desires that the whole world might glorify His name. John 3.16 teaches us that He came, He sent His Son Jesus Christ to die for the world. His love and His forgiveness and His power and His majesty is for them. And the question is, are we asking for breakthroughs in our gospel witness that any and every impediment to His working might be removed? Do we do that? Do we pray that way? Particularly when we come together. Next, we, we would pray that He would bring us boldness. We ought to pray that He would bring us boldness. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto Thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. In light of their threatenings, please, God, bestow upon your followers the power and the authority to be ambassadors to your Holy Son's name. Help us to speak all the more loudly. Help us to be unafraid. Help us to be unafraid in our college classrooms. Help us to be unafraid in our corporate setting. Help us to be afraid, uh, unafraid among our friends and our family members. Help us to speak truth. Help us to be loving. Help us to be bold. What a great prayer request. Oh God, let us speak thy word. That's what they want. They want his words. That despite our circumstances and despite how God chooses to handle the issues of our oppressor, at a bare minimum, please give us a fearless witness. At a bare minimum, God. You might not remove this impediment. So be it. So be it, God but give us the ability and the capacity and the words to speak boldly. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Or have I put you asleep to, to sleep yet? Key point number five. Our corporate prayers must be a request for fearless witness. And many of you made those prayer requests last week. But our prayers together, our time together in prayer must unashamed unashamedly be that God would give us fearlessness in our witness. And that would be to confess that you haven't had that. That's okay. When you're with your brothers and sisters in Christ, be honest. Have you been afraid? God, give me boldness. Give me the ability. Give me a way. Next, bring us breakthrough. God, bring us breakthrough. Verse 30, by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Okay, so according to the apostolic time period in which we're reading about in the story, boldness with the gospel was analogous to miracles. Does that make sense? Let me say it another way. When God began to work in the early church, he, church, he did it at the hands of the apostles, Correct? He used these men to preach and to proclaim the gospel, right? And, and the way that they did that is that they would perform miracles in order to garner the attention of the Jewish people that would otherwise refuse them because they knew that prophets did miracles. And so God gave them supernaturally the capacity to do specific miracles in the midst that it might gain and garner the attention of those who would have ears that were shut up otherwise. Are you with me? They understood that at this point, by now, they understood that miracles were a platform for preaching. 
And so they prayed that miracles would come. Are you, you hearing what I'm saying? In other words, their desire was for miraculous breakthrough in the context of their ministry. So what areas in, in your ministry do you need breakthrough? You need a platform. You need an opportunity. You know, um, God, has, God has given me a platform as a high school art teacher. Okay? Right? He's given me a platform. I have opportunities daily to preach the gospel in the context of a high school cl- classroom. But listen to me. I could very easily go to my job every day and do my job and forget that work and assume closed doors. And I could go about that the, complete, the completely wrong way. Has anybody ever, ever gone about their job the wrong way? And then people end up angry at you and frustrated with you. Your coworkers and you aren't getting along. And you've gone about it the wrong way. Now listen to me. Our lives need to be such that we are looking for breakthroughs and platforms to preach the gospel in every context that we find ourselves in. For the apostles, it was breakthrough by miracle to create a platform that they might preach. For us, I need to be praying that I would do good at my job, that I would be successful as a teacher, that my peers, that my coworkers would see me as responsible and mature. That's a real task, by the way, is to get people to see me as mature. Pray for me. That I would would have success in my teaching. That my instruction would be supernaturally successful. That I would supernaturally build relationships with the students in my classroom. That God would give me favor beyond what I'm capable of in my flesh. If you want to go about it in your flesh, that's fine. You won't get the breakthrough. What I'm talking about is supernatural breakthrough. That we might have a platform to preach the gospel. The early church knew how to pray that. Do you? Do you, God, give us opportunity. Make me successful at the things that I do. We're not talking about financial success. We're talking about relational success. We're talking about a blameless and peaceable lifestyle. Do you have that? If you do, you should have a platform. Key point number six. Our corporate prayers must be a request for God to give us favor with souls. That's what it's about. Our times of corporate prayer must be a request for God to give us favor with souls. That's what we want. That's what we desire. So they pray that way. They pray that way. Let's look at the outcome. Here's the consequence of their cry. In verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. God gave them power. The power of His presence was there. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they assembled together. You know, I would swear that there's been times on Tuesday nights where we've come together and I've felt the earthquake. Now, I know that, that, that would be my imagination, okay? But I'm telling you, there have been times where I've trembled in such a way with my brothers and sisters in Christ that I knew that God was hearing my prayers and He was responding even as we spoke the words. Pretty powerful. God is with us when we pray. 
Verse 33, look at what it says. With great power gave he the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In response to their cries, he gave them filling. Verse 31 says, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. In other words, they had found themselves yielded to his power. He began to work in them and move in them. And they knew and felt his presence. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. They were yielded completely. Another consequence, verse 31, and they spake the word of God with boldness. There is their request for boldness come, come true, right? They spoke the word of God with boldness. God gave it to them. He gave them liberty. Verse 32, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. You know, what's really interesting about this is that they begin in unity and they end in greater unity. Isn't that interesting? That they begin to pray in one accord, but by the time the prayer is done and God begins to move, they are that much more unified to the point where none of them would be willing to say that anything that they possess belongs to them, but to the whole. Nothing I have is mine. It belongs to God and to his people, all of it. I just, I just steward it. None of it is mine. That's how unified they were in their thinking. Key point number seven. Our corporate prayer works. Very simple lesson. How do we pray? And what is the outcome? How ought we to pray for witness? And if we do so, God has made it clear right here that he will give us the outcomes that we desire. He will use us. He will make us profitable. Listen to me. Why is it that we want God to change people's lives? Why is it that we want people to be Christians? It doesn't do anything for me personally in terms of temporal thinking. It doesn't benefit my home, my bank account, my house to propagate the gospel everywhere I go. In fact, it probably just makes all of that a little bit more difficult. Why is it that I desire to preach Jesus Christ? You know, you know, when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, He put His Spirit inside of me and it messed me up. It ruined my life for good. It ruined my life. I'm being serious. It changed everything about me. And I have no choice but to love the things that God loves. And God loves souls. He loves them. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. He wants them. He wants them in His kingdom. And He's called us to do the work. And we ought to have a fearless witness. And our prayer lives should be such, built in such a way and constructed in such a way that every prayer that we make at some level should be about souls. Because he desires them so greatly. He desires the souls of our friends and family members. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world that they might have freedom and forgiveness and know where they're going to spend eternity. He wants that. He desires that. He desires that for you. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, I would pray that before you leave, that God would give you the liberty in your heart to have the conversations with people in here that can help you. They can share with you from God's word what it means to know him. 
what it means to believe on him, what it means to call on him for forgiveness and to change your life and have it ruined forever. So while we walked through this passage, Christians, you should have considered what areas of your ministry have been impeded by external or internal factors. Hopefully you considered that. And here's my question for you. Have you prayed with other people about it? What people, places, things need to be ushered before our Father in heaven that the gospel might have free course? Don't leave without having made those prayers. The worship team can come up. We'll pray and close. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we know uh, that it was no light thing to send him to this world. Lord, it's so amazing to me that historical record makes the life of Jesus Christ, even his death, burial, and resurrection, undeniable. You sent your son into this world that all might live. His death might bring us life. You did that. And God, for that, I worship you. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today that is doubting, doubting you, if there's anybody in this room that would say, I just don't know, if there's anybody in this room that says, I think I believe, but I'm not sure, Lord, that, that if there's anybody that's wrestling or struggling with the issue of who Jesus Christ is to them, that they would not leave without having dealt with it. You are a good and loving God, and we live in a vile and wicked world. And we all know that's true. And we have no solutions. We have no answers outside of you. We have no, we have no answers or solutions for our depression, our sadness, our social climate, the vile that's coming from our political leaders, we have no answers for these things. And so we get angry, we get frustrated, we turn inward, we turn outward, and still, no answers. We need forgiveness. We need to be set free. We need the power of Jesus Christ to come into our lives and ruin us for your name's sake. And Lord, I would pray that, that every member of this ministry would desperately see their need for you and that they would move forward in response. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.